befriended and told you everything so we can kind of get off the stage right now. Um, but we were asked to come here tonight and talk a little bit about coming back into the faith, because I would guess like some of you, you know, maybe left or started just recently, and it's kind of good when you um, hear other people talk about coming back. Raising a big family, I guess some people think 12 kids is a big family. And living overseas and running a shelter and all the other things that he has done and he will talk about. So to tell you a little bit about me, and then Dave's going to tell you a little about the camp. I was born in New York. I'm guessing you can all tell. Um, I was born in the Bronx, even more of a giveaway. And I come from a large Irish Catholic family in New York. And I came from one of the best families that you could ever imagine. My dad was a New York City police officer. Um, he wore a picture of us in his hat every day and came home and made us find and carries the bed. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom and she sat out on the street and watched us play and she always had the coffee pot going and all of our friends were always welcome. It was just like, like I didn't know that everybody didn't live the way that we lived. It was just such a beautiful family. Um, we went to church every Sunday, but that was where our family kind of stopped a little bit. That was the beginning and the end of our faith formation. <clears throat> we didn't pray as a family. We didn't talk about God. We didn't, uh, once we made our first full communion, we were going to go to confession again. I knew nothing about the faith, and it was kind of a, a cultural thing in the churches then at that time, I think, too. And so I don't blame my parents for it, but <clears throat> in any way. But, um, um, I knew that um, Mary was the mother of Jesus, and I knew Joseph was a carpenter, and that was basically it. So at a young age, I moved into New York City, and um, I really had a great career. He'll make some jokes about that later. Um, and um, I completely stopped going to church, except for that occasional Christmas or Easter. And of course, I marched right up to receive communion because I was a good Catholic. I thought that's what Catholics did. Um, and then I, I met my, my future husband at the time. And he'll, again, he'll tell you his story, but it was very much like mine. You know, very much great family and raised Catholic, but but basically no formation <clears throat> at all. And um, we decided after dating for a while that we were going to get married, and we marched right on down to the Justice of the Peace, and that's what we did because that was also very civilized and, and proper for a good Catholic couple. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I had this great career, and I was pretty much the one making the money at that time because he was a, a drug enforcement agent and the, the plan was he was living in Los Angeles and he was trying to transfer to New York because that's where we were going to stay. And right after getting married, we realized that we were expecting our first baby right away. We weren't very good at planning, we weren't really good organizers and we just thought, okay, so this is how this works. <laughs> was busy um, working and planning on the best nanny in all of New York to come and watch my child and put together this really cute little nursery in our high-rise building that we lived in at the time. And I remember looking at this nursery after I put it together and I was kind of thinking to myself, you know, I could imagine someday, like maybe in the future, way off, thinking about discussing possibly having a second child in this house, you know? And, um, you know, but we all know that God has other plans for all of us. So my first baby was born, and she was completely and totally collared. She was so collared 
that she, um, they used, yeah, right there. With <laughs> her baby who never lets her sleep, but it's not um, But they tried medicines on her that they don't even use anymore. And she legitimately screamed 24 hours a day. So my entire dream of living in New York and going back to work and was, was completely demolished because I had to get some help with this baby. So I moved to Los Angeles. We gave up the transfer. And immediately, I was pregnant with that second baby <laughs> that um, playing that nursery in New York for. I know he's saying things back there. <laughs> and um, we had our second baby, and that was lovely. And it was just a few months later that I was pregnant with my third baby. And I do have to tell you, I did go on, and I, I did miscarry that baby, and it was very sad after a few months. But a few months later, I was again pregnant. So. Um, it just kind of, you know, rolled that way, and we just were just not planning people. And so um, we moved back now to Virginia, <clears throat> and I have three kids, and they're ages three and under. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, I was a little bit, you know, bored because I was usually pretty busy, and so I decided that I wanted to uh, consider doing foster care. And um, my husband was definitely not for this. <laughs> but I, you know, I whittled him away as much as I could, and I signed up for the classes, and I went to the foster care classes. And I realized that it was a gateway for people to adopt in some cases. You know, a lot of families there had no children or just one, and 10 years later. And I thought, well, they are never going to give us any kids because it was three, two, and one-year-old. And so I did the six-week class and left there. I was kind of relieved because I thought this is, was a little bit impulsive. And of course, they called me, and they had two little girls that they wanted to bring to our house. And this is before cell phones, so I couldn't get in touch with him and tell him. And I'm just like forced to say yes. And they bring me these two little girls. So now I have an eight-month-old, a 15-month-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and a four-year-old. <laughs> So it was really easy. Life was very um, chaotic and, and just easy. And I mean, I did everything with these five kids. I went to my doctor appointments with them. I went shopping with them. I did everything with them because he was working so many hours. Um, so I thought, well, now's the time for me to start volunteering. So I, um, <clears throat> I thought I was pro-life at the time. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. I thought I was pro-life at the time, although I didn't really know what it meant to be pro-life, but I know I would never have taken the life of a child. So I called Birthright. And they were thrilled to have me come as a volunteer, but I guess I neglected to tell them that I would be bringing all five kids with me. So if you could imagine these girls coming in desperate, and I'm trying to give them a pregnancy test or counseling while I'm holding a, you know, an infant, and my 15-month-old is tearing the place apart, and somebody else is having a temper tantrum in the corner, so the really smart ladies at Birthright asked me if I would do layouts instead of coming to the office anymore. And I said, sure. I was just so happy to be with them because they're such a nice group of ladies. And that's where I had my very first Catholic aha moment. I was um, at a Birthright meeting with a woman that was having her sixth child. And I only had five at the time. And I remember saying something that's so appropriate, and I'm sure some of you will hear down the road. <sighs> Better you than me. I don't want any more kids. Shop closed, you know, the whole bit. And she she looked at me and she was just so sweet. You know, she didn't get angry and she just said, Well, you know, my husband and I are Catholic 
And so we're open to as many children as God blesses us with. And I remember so clearly thinking, what is being open to children have to do with being Catholic? And if our kids were both staying there right now, these kids would be happy. The one whose mother just said, I'm welcoming as many blessings as God gives me or mine, who just heard me say, I don't want any more of them. And it, it really opened my mind for the first time to ever start thinking, you know, a little bit, a little bit more about how I was thinking and living my life. And so I continued working in, in the pro-life movement, becoming more and more involved. And naturally, if you work in the pro-life movement, it always brings you back to the Catholic Church. Everybody knows that. So um, I started getting involved with these ladies that are all very, very Catholic ladies. And they're all doing very, you know, great pro-life things. And they invite me to a mom's group. And I thought, this is great, we're all gonna sit and have coffee and the kids are gonna tear up in the activity center and you know, this is gonna be fun. And what they didn't tell me was that they started off every week with a rosary. I had never said a rosary in my life. Never heard of a rosary in my life. And so the first woman starts talking and she's, you know, saying some words I didn't know and then some prayers that I kinda knew, which was great. And I was thinking, okay, I can, I can kind of fade along. And then she starts saying Hail Mary like 100,000 times. And, and then, like, the next lady did the same thing. And then the third lady did it. And I was like, wow, this is going to take forever. You know, and I realized that I'm somewhere in that circle and somebody's going to call on me eventually. And I did not want them to know that I didn't know. So I ran after a kid or whatever else that I, that I did to get out of that circle. And I went home, though, and I decided that I was going to learn those prayers. And I'm not kidding. I must have said Hail Little Queen a thousand times before I found the memorized that thing. I made cheat sheets for the mysteries, and I did a lot of good with them, actually. <laughs> and I was going to master getting there and saying these prayers are not like these people know that I didn't know anything. Um, but what I found when I did that was that I wanted to be with these ladies, and I wanted to pray with them, and I wanted to know what these mysteries meant. And I really was starting to like feel something, you know, that I, I had never felt before. And so I, um, sorry, it's almost your turn. So um, I don't mind waiting for you here. <laughs> so, um, so um, I forgot where I was now. So anyway, so I, I, I wanted to be with these people, and I thought, well, the next logical thing to do is to start going to church. And so it was great. I'm just going to leave him home with the kids, and I'm going to go to mass on Sundays. Well, when I got to Mass and I saw that other people were there with their families, and once again, I kind of felt this urge to do that, but I also didn't want them to see me, even though without my family. So a lot of it was sort of that, you know, caring what other people thought thing. But, um, and I went home and I spoke to my husband, who I was terrified was going to think, oh, she's turning into this Jesus freak now. And I said, I really want to do this together. I want our family to go to church together. And, um, you know, he kind of said, me too. So we did. We started taking our kids to church, and we started praying as a family, and hanging out with all these great people that were such great role models for us. And we went and got married in the church, and we started receiving sacraments. And you know, it was just beautiful. We just started becoming this really great Catholic family. And the last part, the first part of this for me, is that the other side is that everybody that we were hanging with at the time was homeschooled. <clears throat> And once again, I was like, oh, better you than me. I'm not doing any of that. And um, I was one of the only one in the group that was sending my oldest daughter at the time to kindergarten. 
But when she went off to school around Christmas with the Book of the Nativity, and she wasn't allowed to open it and came home very hurt, I realized that I wasn't armed well enough to defend my faith. I wasn't armed well enough to defend it to her, to her teacher, even myself. So once again, I went to my husband, who I thought was really going to think I was off my rocker now, and said that I wanted to homeschool the kids. And whittled away a bit again, and he finally agreed. <clears throat> and that's what we did. And it was really great because I was pulling out all these books like on a five-year-old level, and I was learning for the first time words like Eucharist and um, Tabernacle and things that I had just never even said before, heard before in my life, and it was these great baby steps to learning. So we did that. And soon after we found out, because like a lot of young couples, we were not starving by any means, but you know, financially we would have liked to have done a little bit better. So we were given an opportunity to go to Thailand. And it was great because we were thinking, well, everything's cheap over there and the government will pay for our housing, so we are just going to have this great big nest egg when we get there. We are just going to put away for the rest of our lives and we're going to be sad. And uh, we decided to go, and so we packed up our five babies, and we went to the other side of the world, and we started a new life in Thailand. And now I'm going to let him tell you that story, and my version is the true one. So. <laughs> yes, dear. <laughs> I'm Dave. How are you? <laughs> I've been sober one day. Thanks very much. I grew up in a very similar family, Kathleen. We were Catholics for generations and generations. The Bible in our house was coated in dust. I walk out one, one evening, I walk in the living room, hey, what's this old book about? My mom's like, hey, put that down. What if someone sees it and thinks we're Baptists? For goodness sake. Quick, everybody, get a drink and dance. And that was really kind of a mindset. So, so but, but no one really did anything except go to church. We went to church on Sundays, every holy day. But that was it. We never discussed the faith, never read the Bible. Never did any really research. It's funny, right? So I grew up the same way, thinking I'm doing everything right. Ended up in uh, New York City, where I met this young lady here, and she has these blue eyes that are spellbinding. <laughs> I was trapped in the web. <laughs> I was captured. <laughs> What I didn't realize until later is those blue eyes also have laser beams. <laughs> it can shoot down into your soul. <laughs> okay? It has a lot to do with my decision making. <laughs> Wonderful cop family, and cops all love cops, and their family was happy that I was part of the family. It's a great family. But it was the same thing. We all of a sudden, I married this rich woman. Next thing I know, I got three kids and I'm changing diapers all the same time. You know? But I was saying, there's something missing. We were both saying it to ourselves and then until later on when we talked to each other about it because we were both embarrassed about it. And I was thinking, you know what? We go to church occasionally. I said, I love being in church because it's all full of normal people. And I was a, I was a drug enforcement agent working with all these lowlifes hanging out in bars and chasing people and terrible things. And they're a lot of fun, i got to tell you, but it's 
for kids to see, you know? So I love that. And I also had a had an uncle in the family who was a Catholic priest, a professor, a very profound influence, especially later on in life, because he always had to be a philosopher. And he always said, okay, what's it all about? You know, why are we here? There's got to be a reason for it. It didn't just happen. So that really made me think, right? What the church Catholics talking about really getting into our faith? And I'm saying, yeah, you know, I think it's the right thing to do. So we go to church, and I actually ended up sponsoring a, a, a new person coming into the Catholic faith to the RCIA. So I take the guy there, and I'm sitting down. The priest is giving us our lessons. Never knew any of this stuff. The guy's turning, guys looking. Did you know that? I said, of course, I was a Catholic. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Catholic, of course I knew that. What are you talking about? Huh? Oh, it was amazing. Such an eye opener. So we've got the three kids. Catherine decides she's going to start to save the world then. We initially get signed up for a foster program because, again, she's not busy enough with her kids. On a Thursday, they bring us a little boy and a little girl. They're like maybe 8 and 10 years old. They've been taken from their parents because of abuse or neglect or something. They say, okay, here you are. You're going to be the foster parents. We're like, sure, fine. Why said I want to do it? So I guess I did. The little boy said, hey, can I call you dad? We literally walk into the house. Can I call you dad? I said, yeah, I guess so. Man. It's screwed up. <laughs> that Monday, they came and took them back and said, oh, it's okay now. We're going to give them back to their parents. I told my wife, this is interesting how what I say and what she hears is always the same thing. I said, I'm not doing that anymore. She said, you're right. We'll adopt next time. <laughs> but it was too late, right? So then our first two little precious angels show up. I said, okay. I said, all right. We're going to compromise. I will take this, but I'm only taking beautiful children. Right? Because it wouldn't be fair or biological. So I got a couple of beauties showed up. We're going to Thailand with our five kids. We're going to make some money, pay out the bills, set for life when we come back. No more financial issues. Now, we'll go back to the next version of the story as we're in Thailand. <laughs> Okay, so now we're in Thailand, and we moved to a little town called Chiang Mai in Thailand. It was really quite beautiful. Um, it was about an hour by plane outside of Bangkok, but 12 hours driving. It was just lovely. Um, and the area we were in was a real hub for missionaries, for Christian missionaries, who were great friends of mine. Because their families, their husbands, for the most part, would work in Burma or Laos or Cambodia, places where their families couldn't live. <clears throat> so they were in this hub. It was easy to get in and out of there. And they really were very, very nice people. But we always got the, you know, that look, that blank stare when they found out that we were Catholic. It really um, was hard on them. And we were told on more than one occasion, and my children were told on many occasions, that um, we were not saved, you know, because we were Catholic. And so, um, and, and some of the reasons they gave is because we worshipped Mary, or because uh, they told us that we believe that Jesus died on the cross, but you know we don't believe in the resurrection, and that's why we held on to him and crucifix and <clears throat> worshipped idols and all kinds of things like that. And you know, at that point in my life, I mean, I was 
feeling very Catholic, but I wasn't really um, very knowledgeable Catholic. I was definitely, you know, Catholic 101. And not to mention that the, this big hub here, this Christian missionaries, they had this great big church up the road, and they had so much fun because there were so many, and the kids had a million friends and all that kind of thing. We belonged to this little tiny Catholic church where we literally sat on the floor in our church. And it was just this tiny little room with this little Filipino band and great, great priests. Um, so, you know, it kind of would have been more fun to go up to that church. And I was pretty easily, could have been, you know, pulled in their direction at that point. But something in my heart just knew that, they, that it wasn't right, that I was exactly where I needed to be. And so I decided that instead of taking the easy way and going and joining, you know, these folks, that I was going to actually learn more about my faith. And we were overseas, so it was a little bit harder, but I was able to get in touch with great friends who were really, really, really well-versed in the faith. And I was able to get the Catholic answer, and I was able to get the catechism, and I just read. And I wrote to priests, and I wrote to friends, and I wrote to the Catholic answer, and I asked questions. And I just kept finding the truth. And I would go to my good Christian friends and I would thank them for challenging me and leading me more and more into my faith. And of course, you never wanted to hear that. But they did eventually, you know, respect that. And I just it just it just forced me to learn everything that I needed to learn, you know, to, to be where I am today. So one of the things that happened though is right down the street from us where we lived, there was an orphanage for children with AIDS. Now, if you had told me before I ever went to Thailand that I had even tested this with AIDS, I would have said you were crazy because at that time, you know, you really didn't know how it was transmitted exactly. It was a little bit scary. But I was also told that this woman that ran this orphanage wouldn't let me come there because I was Catholic. And she only wanted the children to be in homes where they were safe and people were taking these kids out. And I wasn't really very tenacious at that point in my life. I was actually a little timid, but I was that day. And I went to that orphanage, and I met this lady. And she was probably the gruffest human being I've ever met in my life. She was rough, and she was tough. Her name was Avis. And she was the most loving human being I've ever met. She loved these babies, and she would have died for these babies. And over time, I whittled her down a little bit, too. And we got to start being good friends. And there was one day where there was this one little baby, tiniest baby ever crying. And she scooped the baby up and she put the baby in my arms and she said, here, hold on a while. And I was just like, and I held this little baby and it was like I had just given birth to this child. I knew right then and there that this baby was supposed to be my baby. And so I told her, Ava, I'm bringing this baby home and that's, you know, you can kind of do that there. It wasn't the red tape like here. And uh, she was like, yeah, that's fine. You know, open the, open the bed up for another baby. And we started calling him Patrick. So for the sake of the story, we'll continue calling him Anawat Patrick. And Patrick tested positive for HIV. And I didn't care. I brought him home, and my entire family loved him. The kids would take him for show and tell. Like, it was crazy. We, just, we thought that he was the cutest little thing ever. And he was little. He was born two pounds, and he was left in a government hospital to just die. He was just left there. He wasn't on machines. He wasn't in a neonatal. He was just left with a bottle propped in his mouth. He was just... Anyway, so um, I bring Patrick home, and we spend the first year with Patrick in and out of hospitals. He's sick all the time. 
and my husband would go to work in the morning, and he would work all day, and I would get the kids out and ready, and then I would, he would relieve me at the hospital, and I'd go home and get dinner, and baths, and kids to bed, and he'd sleep at the hospital, and we'd do this next morning, and we literally did this off and on for an entire year with this child, and he tested positive for AIDS the whole time. He had skin diseases, he had lung issues, he had everything you could think of. And one day I was home, and of course he was getting all these routine tests. And I do have to tell you that here in the United States, if a child was born to a mother with AIDS, and they test them, they do a DNA test, and the DNA test shows whether, in fact, they have the virus, or it's just the mother's antibodies showing up. But in third world countries, they don't have that. They just do a typical blood test. So any child born to a mother with AIDS is going to test positive for AIDS. Even if it's just her antibodies showing up and the child in fact doesn't have the virus any more than I have the virus. So a lot of kids would test, would test negative later on. Many kids were just thrown into orphanages and government institutions and just left that way. Um, but Patrick was in and out of hospital so much and routinely tested, and one day was home and got a call and they told me that Patrick had tested negative for HIV. For the first time in my life ever, I felt uncontrollably to my knees and realized that I had just witnessed a miracle. Like there was no question about it. This child was so sick and he was so little and nobody would have believed that he ever could have been healthy. And yet we had this miracle. Like I gotta tell you, I didn't trust it in the beginning and I had him tested and retested and tested and retested, but he was absolutely negative. And just to get to the end of Patrick's story, Patrick is now a United States Marine. He is up in the mountains in California right now practicing to, because he's going to be deployed in um, February, in February with one of my other marine sons. And that is our little AIDS baby who is born two pounds left to die. So he's now protecting all of you. <laughs> stories we have another we have a lot of great adoption stories but Dave is going to tell you another one about one of our other children that's just a really special story but I'm going to come back home now so suffice it to say we come back home to the United States we have 10 kids we are moved to Indiana um, we were only there for a year and a half which was great because it was a rough transition there were a lot of things you know that just were rough on the kids culturally coming back so it was like we moved to Virginia a year and a half later. It was like a do-over, you know. It was kind of great. We got to start over again, and um, everybody just thrived. And in Indiana, the churches were so-so, but this Diocese of Arlington, the churches are the best. So we were very fed. I homeschooled the kids. We got to daily mass all the time. It was just exactly um, where we wanted to be. So I've got these 10 kids. I'm homeschooling. And so I want to do something else. So I'm out at one of the churches at confirmation, and um, again, I felt like the Holy Spirit just hit me upside the head. And I looked out at this church, and I thought, my gosh, there's so many great people in this church, and so many people that want to do something to help, but nobody really knows where to start, and I don't know where to start, but like, I'm willing to give it a whirl. So I talked to this priest and some friends, and we prayed on it. We actually did the St. Andrew Novena, and we, we just prayed on this, and we decided that we were going to open homes for women in crisis during pregnancy. And Mary's Shelter, 10 years ago, began. 
Um, we began in a one-basement apartment. We actually, our first woman that came to us was before we even had a 501c or we had any money or anything. She was a woman from China. Her husband's work visa was up and they were being forced to go back to China and it would have obviously been forced sterilization and abortion for her. And instead they entrusted us and we were able to get her a little apartment. We've now grown over the last 10 years and we've given homes to over 200 women and hundreds and hundreds of children and have saved the lives of hundreds of babies that may have been terminated if the mothers didn't have close to it. So there's so much more I can tell you about that because marriage shelter, it's a two-year program, up to three years possibly, so women, are, their lives are being changed while they're there. And we have a respite program for women so that we can help people that might not be able to get on their feet if not for a few months, but don't necessarily need to be in a shelter. Um, and there's just so much we do. So I urge you to go online and look at marriage shelter because I'm probably down to about another 30 seconds here. And, um, and um, it's a really great ministry. And the last thing that I'm gonna tell you is about our last two that came. So uh, one of our Mary Shelton mothers was doing quite well and then she met the worst guy in town for her and very, very, very bad situation and she left and she took these kids and um, they were living a life that no child should live, no child should see what they saw. And it wasn't long before Child Protective Services and the police came and they removed these two little ones. And the mother, on the way out, asked them, please, please do not put these kids in foster care. Please call Miss Kathleen and ask her if she will take these kids. And for the first time ever, I was ready to say no. I felt like, oh, by the way, I'm also taking care of his dad at this point. His dad has moved in with us for 10 years. and I. I'm taking care of. So he's overseas. I've got 10 kids. I've got his dad, which I love, but you know, it's another thing. And I was feeling, I'm running a shelter, and I was feeling like my plate was full. And I really didn't feel like I could take on two kids. I really don't. And so I said, well, I'll have to talk to my husband, thinking that, of course, he's going to say, no, we are done. That is it. And I'm going to let you tell, I'll let him tell you what he actually said. And just suffice it to say, we have two little kids, and they are now seven and eight, and we love them dearly, but anyway, so you can finish up now. <laughs> so I'm going to just go back and give you my version of what happened in Thailand. <laughs> so we get off the plane with our five kids, we're going to make a bunch of money, put it in the bank, live easy for you. I'm going to get a motorcycle, race car, I swear, day one, she's running to the orphanages there. <laughs> she literally has these, and she goes to this orphanage, and all of these little kids, half of them are dying of AIDS. I mean, it just it tears your heart out. She would have picnics for them in our house. So I, you know, I, I worked across the street, I'd go home for lunch, and I'd go, and this, yeah, I always get choked up. But these little two and three year olds would come up and they wanted me to hug them and hold them because nobody hugs them. They're going to die. And we know they're going to die. Right? And I'm trying to be a tough guy saying, okay, here, take the kids back, I gotta get to work. It works your heart out. So she, so she says, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep this one. <laughs> and I said, no way am I taking a child home who's then going to die on me. And I know it, I'm not gonna take them. She said, okay, well then take them back and just throw them out at the orphanage, will ya? You horrible, horrible human being. <laughs> So I said, what's his name? <laughs> this is Patrick. Hi, Patrick. Welcome. 
So he gets better. Patrick's doing better. We know he doesn't have AIDS now. He's getting healthy. We have to go down to Bangkok, which is in the southern part of the country, to do the official adoption process. It happens to be at an orphanage for older children. So on the way out, after doing the official adoption process, the lovely wife walks along with some of the social workers there, and she says, oh, isn't it sad that these older kids don't get adopted? They need families, too. A week later, I get a call at the office from my lovely bride. Hi, hon, you've got a teenage daughter. Come home and meet her. I swear, that was the call. You kids, if you don't want to keep her, you can always take her back to the orphanage and throw her out, you horrible, horrible human being. I guess I got another teenage girl and I can have a deal with them. So then, her sister-in-law wants to adopt some kids. So then we start finding kids for her sister-in-law and brother-in-law to adopt. Little boy and girl. And then some other kids show up. And then the word's out that the Wilsons will hate everybody. <laughs> so two of the kids that were supposed to go to the sister and brother-in-law, they end up ended up being two of our other kids. And then lastly, that's not enough. We have one of these uh, Catholic magazine comes and does an article about us, which goes throughout Asia. And the Wilsons will take anybody. <laughs> Kathleen's home taking a phone call from a priest down in Bangkok. Hi, Mrs. Wilson, read the article. I've got a little Cambodian boy here in Bangkok who's been abandoned by his drug addict father. And if we put him in the, in the system, they'll just throw him back across the border in Cambodia where he will have no one to take care of. She's like, well, what time can you get here? She calls me at the office again. I should never take calls from her. She says, hi. We've got another one coming up. He's going to be at the train station with Father, I forget Father's name, um, this afternoon, 3 o'clock. Right, he's from Cambodia. We're not sure what language he speaks. Right. So he shows up. He's a nice kid. He's about eight years old, we think. Can't understand a word he says. I, mean, I spoke Thai somewhat, but my Thai kids couldn't understand what language he spoke. Literally, he grew up on the streets of Bangkok while he was trying to find food, and as he literally walked in from Cambodia with someone who may have been his father, we're not sure. A kid likes Thai, he likes rice, that's all we know. But he's a nice enough kid, take him in. So then the issue comes up that he has no papers, he's uh, undocumented in Thailand. I've done some work over in Cambodia, because I worked throughout that region, and I knew some of the higher officials there. So I said, let me go over and talk to the high officials in Cambodia and see if maybe they can do something to fill up, facilitate some paperwork. So I go over and meet one of my general buddies over there, my Cambodian general buddies, and I said, here's the situation. I got this little boy. He's over in Chiang Mai. Been living with him for a while. We think he's from Bottom Bon Province, based on what the social workers told us, which is up in the northwest of Cambodia, which is where the Khmer Rouge came from, which were the people that massacred a million of their own people a few years ago in Cambodia. Lovely folks. No, they were Catholics. <laughs> so I told the general, look, I, uh, we think he's from up there. I've got to get some papers. So 
so that we can get his birth certificate and the adoption process, and we can take him, give him a passport, I can get him back to America. He says, yeah, it's fantastic. I appreciate you doing this for all our poor folks here in Cambodia. I said, he said, I'll be glad to do it for you. He says, can you do me a little favor? I said, sure, General, anything you need. He says, I want to overthrow the country. <laughs> he said, I want to overthrow the country. Can you help? <laughs> I'm thinking, okay. I got about six months left in Thailand. I can probably make it to the border. I think we're being watched right now. Sure, General. I'll help you overthrow the country. What do you mean? Talk to some friends, we'll make things happen for you. I appreciate that. He got me hooked up with his brother-in-law, who was the chief of police in Bonabon. I flew up there, went to the court, went in, did the paperwork. They said, how old is he? He said, we don't know. I said, we think he's eight years old. They said, no, it's not going to work. You can't be older than six and get adopted in Cambodia. I said, okay, we think he's six years old. That's fine. That's fine. There you go, Queen. Congratulations, right? On his Cambodian passport, it has his name Dennis Gabriel Wilson. <laughs> Cambodian passport. Gabriel Wilson. I've been to Cambodia, have you? So we get the paperwork, we get everything finally settled, and we end up getting back uh, out of there successfully and back to America with 10 kids and no money. Right, but they are all my little treasures. Right? Yeah. So we're back in we're back in the United States. Ten kids. My father, who was a grump, and Kathleen was terribly nice to him. Two dogs. I'm working, and so she decides. Yeah. Well, what better time to start running a huge charity? And now that I've got ten kids, an old grumpy old man and two dogs to take care of. Perfect. Makes sense to me. Of course, honey. Yes, you're right. Good thing. Let's go for it. It sounds funny now. <laughs> but, but what would happen is the laser beams sending in, getting into the soul. She's asking, if we don't do it, nobody's going to do it. These babies are going to die. Right? So yeah, we got to do it. We'll, we'll, you know, I'll work until death. <laughs> Through the sweet joy of death. <laughs> but we'll have to do it because, you know, don't look like anybody else's right now. So she starts that. I retired from the DEA. I said, look, honey, I got an opportunity as a retired guy to make some big money. I've been offered a job uh, with this company called Blackwater, who was somewhat notorious back in the day. But I got to go to Afghanistan. She's like, how much are you going to pay you? And I told her it was a lot. She says, let me help you pack. I said, I said you know, the people are getting blown up and there's a war. She says, what's the weather like? Do you need winter clothes or summer clothes? Or she says, I can always mail you something if you don't, if you don't have it there. Right? So, I get on the airplane, I spent three years in Afghanistan, three years in Kazakhstan, a year in Saudi Arabia, and talked to the kids, and they're all, you know, surviving, doing well in America, loving life. Kathleen continues to save the world at Mary's Shelter. She saved a couple hundred babies from Mary's Shelter so far in 10 years, at least 200. I mean, that's
Well, the last little nugget is about the last two kids we have. I'm sitting over in Kazakhstan a few years ago. Life's not bad. I get to read a lot. I'm teaching. I'm teaching foreign police. I'm teaching, teaching foreign police like how to how to shoot people, but do it reasonably. <laughs> Strange, you know, government policies that, that, that you push around the world. But I'm reading, I'm relaxing, I sleep well at night, nothing wakes me up, everything's pretty good. She calls up, she says, you know, these two other kids have shown up, and I know our hands are full, and I said, oh, I got you now. I said, we should take them. <laughs> <Ha>! <laughs> Boom, I got you. <laughs> yes, take them. Not going to bother me, I'm in Kazakhstan. <laughs> trip to the grocery store every week is not a big deal for me. And I'm relaxing. But I had to come home eventually. So yeah, so that's how we ended up with uh, 12 kids and a uh, uh, little lady here who's uh, running Mary's shelter and doing great things. And it all come about because we answered the question, uh, if, if we don't do it, who will? Right? And so I think what we need to, because that's what Catholicism is all about, right? The whole concept of other. How are we going to help each other? What does it mean to be here? It's not random. It's not coincidental. There's a reason we're all here. All right, so we need to maximize it and make the most of our lives. Hopefully get in heaven. When I get to the gates, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm with Kathleen. I'm <laughs> <laughs> on your shot. I was single for a long time. He's a DEA guy. <laughs> 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 I'm with Kathleen. And that's our story, and I'm sticking to it. orphans instead. <laughs> I thought, I'll take it back to the 
a huge struggle. And they just have been. We just accept it and figure it's it's worth the uh, worth the aggravation. But well, we still live very nicely and our children have to very nicely. So it's all they eat almost every day. <laughs> they, all, they all have shoes. Some are both left foot, but they all have shoes. <laughs> <laughs> when you see so many kids that need help, how do you decide which ones you'll take and which ones you don't? Like, how do you make that discernment? Well, only the beautiful ones. We only get Well, you know, here in the United States, it's just not as easy. You know, to, to, well, apparently for us it is, but for most people, it's not. <laughs> just have kids given to you, you know, here. So it's not it's not really easy to decide. Over in Thailand, believe it or not, they're very um, uh, against big families. And we knew families over there that were having, that had one and two kids, and they wouldn't give them a third child if they tried to adopt. I mean, they just have this very small family mentality. So the kids that showed up in our, you know, in our homes, we always had, you know, we always knew instantly, like our little Cambodian boy, I mean, we knew instantly that he was our child, and Patrick we knew, and all the kids that came that way. It really was just a God thing, because it made no sense that they kept giving us these kids. It just made no sense, you know. We weren't going to go home without them. I mean, if Tula couldn't get over to the United States, we were going to move to Cambodia. I mean, it's just kind of how we, how we were operating, so it all just was a God thing like that. I've learned the four things every husband must say. Yes, dear? Yes, dear? Yes, dear? I'm sorry, dear. We also decided early on. Oh, this is good. I decided. I make all the big decisions. She makes all the small decisions. So far, there have been no big decisions. I tell my policeman friends, it's kind of like doing life in prison. Once you accept it, it's not so bad. <laughs> and I'm only joking, and it's been absolutely a gift, my gift to marry this wonderful creature. Absolute gift. Pretty quickly, and so my friends were taking bets on whether we would adopt more kids. And I said, "Well, I don't know, but I, 
I really would love to have a little girl and name her Grace. This is, this is true, you can't make this stuff up. I get to Thailand and I was homeschooling, but we decided to put our kids into this little international Christian school. It was like a big co-op is exactly what it was. And I was sitting outside of the school and this woman walks up to me. And she's got this little Asian baby in her arms. And out of the blue, she says to me, she doesn't know me. And she says to me, are you looking to adopt a child? <laughs> what does this happen to? Are you looking to adopt a child? We have this little girl, her name is Grace, and we need to find a home for her. And I was like, Lord, I have not even unpacked yet. And you are asking me. And she was the beginning of the whole Christian thing then that led me to going to the Agave house and finding Patrick because this was the first time I was confronted with somebody who when I told her, because she, she said to me, I'll tell you this part too, she said to me something about, well, the, Grace comes from the Agape House, and she's one of those babies that tested negative. So we're a missionary family. We're going back to the States. We have to find a family for her. And she said, um, you should come to our church and meet the director of the Agape House, and she would love you because she would love a good wasp family. And I said, well, I don't go to the community church, and I'm not a wasp. I'm not a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I'm Catholic. And her face fell, and she was the first one to start sort of talking to me about us not being saved and the agape house not allowing us to take a child because we weren't saved and, and all that. So it kind of, it, I had to sort of leave all that out to make it my 10 minutes, but um, so that was pretty much the story of Grace. Grace led us, Grace in many ways led us to the rest of our children. <laughs>